Have you ever needed help in a hurry? On Friday night, my family, we sat around the dinner table and we, we talked about uh, times in which e when each of us kind of needed help in a hurry. Uh, m my occasion uh, was shortly after we had moved into our home and we were cleaning up the yard. The yard was a, a mess. They used to drive vehicles in our backyard and kind of repair them. So we'd constantly find like glass and metal and all sorts of things. So we were cleaning up. One of the things to clean up were these five dead cedar trees that were browned and were uh, collecting mosquitoes. And so we were taking them down. So I, I cut the first four down and they all fell right where I wanted them to fall. And then there was the fifth one, the biggest one, of course. Uh, so I did my notch on the front side and then I came in for the back cut. And then the tree sat down on the saw and stopped. The saw stopped, which is a bad thing because that means the tree's going the wrong way. Uh, it's gonna go over the fence and onto the cars in the neighbor's space behind us. So I called, yelled for Lisa to come and help. Uh, we didn't have any rope, of course. Uh, so we, we took the garden hose, we lassoed that tree, uh, and uh, we began to pull together. And finally it fell in the right direction, going the right way, right where I wanted it to begin with. But I needed help in a hurry. Uh, and when you need help in a hurry, you've, you've got to call out. Well, this morning, we're looking together at a psalm when David, he needs help in a hurry. Did you know that you can tell God to hurry up? You can tell God to hurry up and give you help, to deliver you. That's what, that's what David does in Psalm 70, in the psalm that we're looking at today in God's Word. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 70. It's on page uh, 484 of the Bibles provided. And, and while you're turning there, let's just remember uh, the nature of Psalms, where they are in God's Scriptures, and, and how we're to, to use them. When you arrive at Psalm 70, uh, you may see that it's located near the, near the end of the second book of the Psalms. If you were to kind of flip toward the right just a little bit in your Bible, you'd probably see uh, in probably some large block headings, Book 3, uh, which gives you a hint that Psalm uh, 70 is toward the end of Book 2. So the Psalms, they're arranged in these five books. Uh, five, these, are, these are poems, they're songs, they're uh, prayers and meditations. They were um, connected in one way or another to each other, and they're compiled uh, to, to communicate a single message, really, that Yahweh is, is the sovereign God who deserves the praise of His people. And they're, they're connected to the whole story of the Bible. They, they weren't just composed and compiled to communicate one message, but they were also composed and compiled to call God's people to, to pray about and praise God for His work in the world. You'll notice when you get there, you'll see an inscription uh, just below the title, probably Psalm 70. Here, here's the inscription. To the choir master of David for the memorial offering. Now it's written to or for the choir master, which means that it was meant to be sung by the ancient people of God. It was written by King David, you see there, the second king of Israel, uh, the one who received the, the covenant promise of God that one of his sons would be the messianic king, the Messiah who would reign forever and ever. Now, Psalm 70, of course, it follows on the heels of Psalm 69, which was a psalm that David, where David admitted failure, David admitted sin, and, and at the same time in that psalm, Psalm 69, David also laments the fact that his enemies, that they are compounding David's suffering and sorrow. So, how is Psalm 70 connected 
to that psalm that went before it. Well, Psalm 70 is really a continuation in many ways of Psalm 69 in that David, he, he asks God to, to hurry up and draw near, to hurry up and deliver him, to do so quickly. David also asks God for, for God to do something about those who are increasing his sorrow and seeking his life. That's not all that David prays for. He prays that God's people would rejoice and be glad in God, even in the midst of this trouble. When God's king is under such attack, it's not hard to see how the joy of God's people might falter as they face strong headwinds. So in this description, or in this ascription, David also tells us that this psalm was written for the memorial offering. Uh, the memorial offering was part of the grain offering that we find in the book of Leviticus. Uh, perhaps what David is, is trying to communicate through this mention of the memorial offering is that as he, as, as David remembers Yahweh in prayer, that maybe Yahweh would remember him as well. And as we'll find in this psalm as a whole, David doesn't merely want Yahweh to remember him, to acknowledge him, to think about him. But so often that word remember in the Old Testament scriptures means to, to act and to do something. And we'll see that that's what David wants. He wants Yahweh to, to run to him, to deliver him, to help him and to rescue him. Follow along there as I, as I read Psalm 70 now as a whole. To the choir master of David for the memorial offering. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me. O God, you are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, Yahweh, do not delay. This psalm, you probably see it there, verses 1 and 5. This psalm is bookended by David's personal request for Yahweh. That's what's underneath those capital letters, L-O-R-D. Yahweh, for Yahweh to make haste and deliver him. Now, in between those bookends, there are two main petitions. One, David wants Yahweh to do something about his enemies. And two, David wants Yahweh to do something for his people. As we unpack this psalm further, we need to be ever mindful that this psalm ultimately points us to Jesus, the Messiah, the great son of David. As Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We're going to study this Psalm under several headings, and I'm going to give you those headings as we make our way through the passage. Here's the first heading. Hurry up to help me. Hurry up to help me. That's the essence of verse 1, right? Take a look at verse 1 again. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O oh Lord, Yahweh, make haste to help me. David prays, Yahweh, hurry and help me. Now think on this for a moment. Why would David offer such a prayer? Did you know that David has offered a strikingly similar prayer before to this one? We've already heard most of this prayer in the Psalter, actually. Psalm 70 is nearly identical to the second half of Psalm 40. 
David has changed a few words here and there in this psalm, which tells us that in the main, he wants to reuse this prayer of Psalm 40 for a new but kind of parallel situation he's now facing. Uh, in Psalm 40, David was likely reflecting on being pursued by Saul and his band of unmerciful men. But here in Psalm 70, David is facing a new but very similar situation to that. As we'll see in a moment, men now seek David's life, just as they did under the leadership of Saul. What we're looking at here in Psalm 70 might very well be connected to the time when Absalom sought David's life. Uh, Whatever the case may be, what we're learning from David here is that while he is petitioning God to hurry up and rescue him, he's also remembering God's past deliverance. In other words, in drawing on that past prayer, David can't help but remember God's past deliverance. And this is so important for us when we're facing difficulty, isn't it? Sometimes our sorrows and sufferings can cloud our vision. But we need to remember that God has been faithful to us in Jesus Christ. And He will remain faithful to us. Even as we rightly plead for God's rescue from earthly enemies... We must remember that as His people, He's already rescued us from our greatest enemies, the enemies of sin and death. So so why is David praying, hurry up and help me again? Why is he praying that again? Well, because he senses that God is delayed. Have you ever felt like God is taking a long time to act? Have you ever grown impatient with God and wanted Him to relieve the tension of a situation faster? Have you ever wanted God to hurry up and relieve some pain? Whether that be something like loneliness, or depression, or barrenness, or physical frailty and difficulty, conflict, or something else. Sometimes we feel that God is not merely slow in acting, but sometimes the darkness deepens, and we feel like God has withdrawn His presence from us. In other words, sometimes we feel like God is not near. We can learn a lesson from David here. We we must learn a lesson from David here. We must pray with urgency to our God. Hurry up and help. We can pray in the words of another psalm. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We must pray urgently. And we must pray to the God who delivers His people. He delivered Israel from bondage. And he delivered them from the wilderness. David knew God's deliverance too. And not just from Saul. Do you remember what he said as he prepared to face that great giant Goliath? In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 37, David said this, The Lord Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion, one, and from the paw of the bear, two, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David's life was marked by deliverance after deliverance. And if you're a student of the history of your own life, then I'm sure you can see a number of ways God has delivered you, including and especially your salvation in Jesus Christ. In this new situation, David, we see here, he prayed for swift deliverance, and we should too. When we feel as though God is long in coming, or when we feel as though God has been retreating, or when we feel as though our danger deepens, we should pray, hurry, And deliver me, O God, hurry and help me. Just as David was urgent in his plea, so we may be urgent in our plea. Twice, David says, make haste 
make haste. You see that there in verse 1. Though we have such a great salvation and deliverance from our God, and though we already have better than we deserve, that does not mean we are prevented or prohibited from urgently asking our God to bring about our swift deliverance and relief. Instead, it should increase our urgency and our courage, for we know that He is the helper of the helpless. Asking God to hurry and help, it actually honors God. Do you realize that? Asking God to hurry and help, it honors God because it, expre- it expresses our faith that we believe that He has the power to help and deliver His people. It exalts Him as the only one who can help us. In verse 1, David prays, hurry to help me. But then in verses 2 and 3, we learn why. David has enemies. So here's the second point. Hurry to help me because my enemies are strong. Hurry to help because my enemies are strong. You see, read verses 2 and 3 there. David writes, Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. David's petition, it remains urgent, doesn't it? And David's petition concerning his enemies is straightforward, isn't it? He wants the Lord to really turn the tables on them. They're gaining the upper hand and David needs relief. He needs rescue. He needs his enemies to retreat instead of advance. And while there are three distinct petitions, which all begin with those words, let them, you see those words, let them, these three petitions, they they all run along really parallel lines. These petitions are expressing ideas all headed in the same direction. And this is one aspect of Hebrew poetry, right? Often there is a, a parallelism present in multiple lines, and we see that here. We can tell by the words at the end of verse 2 there that David is facing a situation where he is being pursued by those who want him dead. They seek his life. And this is deeply concerning for a number of reasons. But one of them is that David, he is the representative ruler of God's people. What happens if God's representative ruler gets toppled? What happens to his people? They're now leaderless. What should happen if David's enemies Succeed. What should happen to God's people? What should happen to God's name and his strength associated with it? This makes David's enemies God's enemies. David's cause, God's cause. This makes those who want to seek David's life, those who want to devastate God's people. We're also going to see uh, this close connection between God's king and God's people in verse 4, as David prays not only for himself, but for God's people. Right now, though, David is focused on the rising strength of his enemies, and he needs relief. And in this desperate situation, David asks the Lord to bring shame and confusion upon his enemies. David prays for God to bring them into an embarrassing disorientation, so that, we assume, that their plans to take his life will not succeed. Humiliation and foiled plans is what David is praying for. Have you ever prayed that for someone? David, this is what David wants for his enemies. David is praying for something like what happened in the Exodus. You remember when God parted the water, the people of Israel, they walk across on dry land, and then the Egyptians, they follow them in. And what does God do? He clogs up their wheels so they must drive slowly and hard. It's embarrassing 
for the armies of Egypt. And they panic and they drive heavily. David is praying for a turning of the tables. And in fact, the, the language of turning there is expressed in the, the second half of, the, the, of the, the verse there in those words. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Did you notice that about David's enemies now? David's enemies, they not only seek to take his life, but they are emotionally invested in his suffering. Right? It pleases them to see David dishonored. They're, they're elated by David's distress. These enemies, they're, they're wicked and cruel. They take joy in David's pain. They prey upon his misfortune. They're really the worst kind of opposition, for they are in no way friendly or sympathetic. There's not a compassionate bone in their bodies. So David prays for a second time for the Lord to do something about his enemies. In verse 3, we, we finally get a report of David's enemies vocalizing their joy in David's pain. Sometimes that expression, aha, aha, in the Hebrew, sometimes that expression can be one of joy. But, but here, the joy of David's enemies is perverted. This vocalization of what David, it's a vocalization of what David said really in verse 2, that they delight in his distress. In other words, uh, their pursuit of David, their hatred of David, and their delight in his ruin is not a secret. Right? It's verbal. It's, it's out there. Their wickedness is, is widely known. It has reached David's ears. And in order for it to reach David's ears, it had to pass through the ears and the mouths of others. It's one thing to know that you have enemies. It's another thing to know that they are publicly expressing their hatred of you in joyful glee. It's, it's one thing to have enemies. It's another for them to laugh at you and for you to know that they are laughing at you. David's enemies, they laugh at him and they want others to laugh at him too. The devil and the world loves to see the church fail. They, they shout it from the rooftops. They invite others to join in celebrating any misfortune that befalls the people of God. And God's people, they do experience public scorn. It's laced in the language of sexual freedom and repressive ethics. It's found in the label of intolerance or narrow-minded. It's heard in the calls for equality. It's seen in the disparaging of Christian righteousness and the normalization of unrighteousness and sin. Brothers and sisters, we have to be honest, the world laughs at God's people. Just as David's enemies laughed at him. And we must ever remember that we do not live to please the world. We live to please the maker of the world. So, so what should we think of such a prayer from David? What should we think about a prayer where David asks the Lord to turn the tables on his enemies? To bring them to shame and dishonor? What should we think about a prayer where David wants the Lord to surround his enemies with an embarrassing disorientation? This kind of prayer, the prayer of verses 2 and 3, it's commonly known as an imprecatory prayer. Um, they occur actually relatively frequently in the Psalms. An imprecatory prayer is where the people of God call for God's judgment upon God's enemies. It's a prayer in line with Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God promised to bless those who bless His people and curse those who curse His people. So, 
the kind of question that immediately springs into mind that New Testament Christians like you and me is can we pray a prayer like this today? When we as Christians are mocked and scorned in our workplaces, in the world, in the media, in the pages of a, a major newspaper, for example, or in the public square, what does it look like to pray Psalm 70 verses 2 and 3? Should we pray such a psalm? Well, yes, we should pray Psalm 70 verses 2 and 3. But how? How do you actually pray something like this? We pray for the Lord's to awaken our friends, our co-workers, our family members, our neighbors to their sin. To be ashamed for how they've treated God and God's people. It means we pray for our friends, our co-workers, our family members, and our neighbors to repent. And to be brought to salvation in Jesus Christ. But perhaps you think, now come on, David is praying for the immediate ruin of his enemies and their reversal. Can we pray for that? Well, you're, you're right. That David is asking. That, that's what David's asking for. And still, we, we live in light of the cross, don't we? We cannot take that out of our view. So praying this prayer in light of Christ and His cross means praying for the sins of the wicked to be immediately put to death in the cross of Christ. We want to pray that their rebellion against God would be immediately reversed and ruined. Matthew Henry summarizes the idea of a prayer like this. Let them be ashamed. Let them be brought to repentance. So filled with shame as that they may seek thy name. That's how we can pray this psalm. This is how we should pray for those who shame and persecute God's people. And we should remember that in the words of Psalm 25 verse 3, that none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. We should remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 9, verse 33, quoting the scriptures, Paul says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We can have hope even as we face enemies. We trust in our God. We pray for God to reverse their stance toward God and his people. We must guard ourselves against resentment toward God, guard ourselves against arguing with God, envying the wicked. And disillusionment, we must remember what we learned last week. That we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We must trust our God and call out to Him as David does here. We must believe that God cares and is concerned for those who suffer. We must trust that the judge of all, who is more concerned about justice than we are, that the judge of all, that He will right all wrongs. At no point does David take matters of justice and judgment into his own hands. Instead, he repeatedly entrusts himself to God who judges justly. As he brings his petition to the Lord, he makes those petitions on the basis of God's righteousness and justice. And at the end of the day, he entrusts the outcome to God. In other words, his orientation, his confidence is finally resting in God and his goodness and righteousness and deliverance. And just as David was not guaranteed deliverance from his enemies... Neither are we. But we can still pray and plead that God would do something about it. And we should. If verses 2 and 3 are a prayer of David, asking for God to do something about his enemies in the midst of his distress, then verse 4 is a prayer of David asking God to do something for his people in the midst of this distress. So let's turn then and consider our, our third point. Hurry up and help because your people are weak. Hurry up and help because your people 
or weak. Read verse 4 there of Psalm 70 now. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. David, we see here, he turns from praying for himself and for his deliverance from his enemies to praying for God's people and their persistence in the faith. And now you may be wondering, why would I suggest that God's people are weak? Well, consider what David's praying for, right? He prays for their joy and gladness. He, he prays that they would proclaim the greatness of God. Typically, when we are weak, we need encouragement to rejoice. We need encouragement to be glad. We need encouragement to proclaim the goodness and greatness of God. To our modern ears, it's at this point that the psalm sounds silly. Right? Can David really divide humanity into two groups of people? Those who are not God's people and those who are God's people. Those who love God and those who hate God. Can David really divide humanity into those two groups? Well, the hard part is, is that David's not the first one to do it. Not only do the Psalms begin that way with Psalm uh, uh, 1 verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, right? There's nobody in between those two groups. Not only do the Psalms begin that way, but you go back to the very beginning of the Bible and you find in Genesis 3, God promises that there's going to be conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. You see, running right through all of redemptive history is a division between those who are with God and those who are against God. From the framework of the Bible, or we could say from God's perspective, you are either with Him and for Him, or you are against Him. And the question that we all need to ask ourselves is, are we enemies of God? Or are we those that David describes here in verse 4? Look at how David describes God's people. They are those who seek God and love His salvation. Is this you? Do you seek after God? Do you seek to discover more about Him, more about His character, more about His deeds? If you wanted to, where would you go to find Him? Did you know that He has made Himself known? He has certainly made His existence known in the created order. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul tells us that in the created order, God has made His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, known. That they're clearly perceived. God has disclosed His existence into the created world. But He has also disclosed His existence, His character, His attributes in His Word, the Bible. The Bible is God's gracious self-disclosure of Himself. The Bible is where we learn that the Lord Yahweh is a God merciful and gracious, that He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A sign that you are one of God's people is that you seek after God to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him. Do you seek Him? Do you dig into His Scriptures to know Him, to know who He is and what He's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now notice, notice another complementary description of one who belongs to God there in verse 4. God's people rejoice and are glad in God. You see that there? David, in verse 4, David prays, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Right? The, the joy and the happiness of God's people is not in money, 
but in the Maker. The joy and the happiness of God's people is not in material things, but in the one who made the material world. The joy and happiness of God's people is not in people, but in the one who made people in his image. Do you rejoice in God? Are you glad in God? Gladness in God is a, a real challenge these days, isn't it? Because there's so much around us that begs and calls for our attention and affection. So much around us that offers itself as a substitute for satisfaction. Ease and, and comfort are all idols which the devil and the world offer to our flesh. And that sadly, still often our flesh wants. Right? Wealth is offered to us by the world as a form of security too. Prominence and power, especially in this region, are, are, are held in, in sway. And they're attractive to us. At the end of the day though, God's people we see here, they're glad in Him. God's people are, are humble and grateful that they have been graciously given the gift of eternal life in Jesus. Everything else is just bonus. And notice carefully, David is not praying, he's not praying that God's people will rejoice in his deliverance or his restoration. David's not praying that God's people will rejoice in God turning the tables on David's enemies and their enemies. David's not praying that God's people would rejoice in enemies and his enemies and their enemies being shamed. David's not praying that God's people would rejoice in that, in that distress or that trial, that tribulation being gone. No, he is praying for their joy and gladness in Yahweh. If our joy is connected to any of those other things, our joy will rise and fall with those circumstances as they inevitably change. What we, we need, what David prayed for, that our joy would be in God, firmly fixed in Him. That's how joy can be defiant, isn't it? With the changing circumstances all around us, we know the truth of God and who He is and what He's promised His people and that He never changes and therefore our hope never changes. That's how joy can be defiant in a world of changing scenes. This is what David prays for God's people. This is what we need to pray for one another. I believe it was um, Spurgeon who once pointed out that to rejoice in God is to joy in God and to rejoy in Him again. So we take joy in God and we take joy in Him over and over again. Let's pray this for one another. So say you wanted to pray through page 10 of the directory because it was the 10th day of the month and you wanted to pray for the brothers and sisters in Christ. What would you pray? Perhaps you could pray this. What if you came across a brother or sister you didn't know? I don't know how to pray for them. What if you prayed this verse? You could pray, Heavenly Father, may Aaron seek you today. Right? Heavenly Father, help James to rejoice in you today. Heavenly Father, help Kat to find her gladness in you today. Imagine if another brother or sister in Christ prayed that for you. Wouldn't that be a good prayer for you? You need that prayer, don't you? We need that prayer. Your brother and sister need it too. So pray it for them. Take a close look at the second half of verse 4 again. David prays, may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. This is another description of God's people. God's people are those who love God's salvation. We love God's salvation because Jesus obtained what we could not. We love God's salvation because though we have been exposed as those who have sinned and rebelled against God and are worthy of eternal damnation, we have been gloriously and graciously pardoned 
by the blood of Jesus Christ. God's salvation tells us with blunt and brutal honesty that we were enemies of God. That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet in Jesus Christ, God pursued us and loved us and subdued us. He has done that by sending His Son and by sending His Spirit. God, He sent His Son to live the life of perfect obedience, the life that we've not lived. God sent His Son to die in our place as our substitute, to bear the punishment that our sin deserves. He was paid the wages of our sin in His death. God sent His Son to be raised from the grave in victory over sin and death. And then God sent His Spirit to attend the preaching of this message concerning His Son. God sent His Spirit into our hearts to convict us of our sin and to comfort us in the truth. In that turning from our sin and trusting in His Son, in Jesus, we might be saved, adopted into His family, and welcomed into His final and glorious kingdom. Those who love God's salvation joyfully proclaim this good news. And they joyfully proclaim this good news and proclaim that God is great. He's great because He's gracious. He's great because He's provided such a great salvation to meet our need. And consider this proclamation of God's greatness by Thomas Watson. He writes, See the amazing goodness of God, that He is pleased to enter into the sweet relation of a Father to us. He showed power in being our Maker, but mercy in being our Father. That when we were enemies and our hearts stood out as garrisons against God, He should conquer our stubbornness and of enemies make us children and write His name and put His image upon us and bestow a kingdom of glory. What a miracle of mercy this is. Praise God. Friend, I, I want to return to the question I asked you earlier. Do David's words about God's people describe you? Do you seek the Lord? Are you glad in God? Do you love this salvation that we've just talked about in Jesus Christ? Do you say God is great? Friend, today is the day of salvation. Turn from being an enemy of God and confess that you are a sinner. Be ashamed of your sin. And yet be comforted and consoled that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. And He lifts His people to honor and glory because of all that He has done. Rejoice that Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation and put your hope in Him. In the words of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion upon Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon Oh, friend, come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith today. And, and if you want to know more about what it means to, to seek the Lord Jesus, to rejoice and be glad in God, and to love the salvation that He has accomplished in Jesus Christ, I'd, I'd love to talk with you about that. Find me at the door after the service. Talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came with here today. There's nothing more important than you can think about than this good news and become one who is glad in God. Christian there's one more point of application I want to make from this verse to you. And it's this. Proclaim. Proclaim that God is great. This week, tell someone about Jesus. 
Invite just one person to come to church or to read the Bible with you. Pick one person that by God's grace and for His glory, you will purpose to tell them about the greatness of God. After the service, ask another believer, someone outside of your immediately physical family, ask another believer to pray for you to be bold in sharing Christ. Let's ask each other, who's the one person you're going to invite to read the Bible with you or invite to church this week? Then let's pray for one another. Let's encourage one another and help each other accomplish that throughout the week. What we set out to do for the greatness and glory of God. Let's proclaim that God is great. There's, there's one more, that was one more point of application. And here is one more point of comfort from verse 4. And it's a big one. King David, he prayed this psalm for God's people. And we can be certain that Jesus, our great high priest and king, has prayed and continues to pray for us. See, David wasn't the only king who prayed for his people. God, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, has prayed for us and he continues to pray for us too. David prayed this prayer for God's people as he saw their joy fading as he saw their gladness declining, as he saw their love leaking away, and as he saw their boldness to declare God's greatness weakening, David saw this and he prayed for God's people. Jesus knew that in this world we would have the same trouble. And so he prayed for us. Do you remember what he prayed in John 17? In John chapter 17, verse 9, Jesus said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Do you hear that? Jesus is praying for a people who are glad in God, who love His salvation, and who belong to Him. And then in John chapter 17, verse 13, Jesus prayed that we would have His joy fulfilled in us, that we would rejoice. And then in John chapter 17, verse 18, Jesus said that He has sent us into the world. He sent His disciples into the world. And what do we go, go into the world to do? We go and we proclaim the greatness of Jesus. You see, in essence, Jesus has prayed Psalm 70 verse 4 for us. Jesus prayed for us not only while He was on earth, but even now He prays for us in heaven. This is what the writer of the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. And now, here's the thing about our great high priest and king in heaven. He became poor and needy like us, right? Poor and needy like David in order to rescue us. So let's look at that last line of Psalm 70 where David says, well, in verse 1, David said, hurry to help me. And then in verses 2 and 3, David said, hurry to help because my enemies are strong. Verse 4, David said, hurry to help because your people are weak. And now look at what David says. He says, hurry to help me. Our fourth point, hurry to help because I'm poor and needy. Hurry to help because I'm poor and needy. Read verse 5 there. But, it's a contrasting word there, right? But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord Yahweh, do not delay. Here the psalm, it reaches its climax and its resolution. Here the tension of the psalm is at its height. You know why? Because David fully admits that he's in a weakened position. He's made known that his life was sought. He's made known that his enemies desire his hurt. But it's only now we learn that he's poor 
and needy. It's one thing to take on enemies and lead God's people from a position of strength, but it's another to take on enemies and lead God's people from a position of weakness. David says, I'm weakening, so I need you to hurry. Now, do you remember what I said about earlier about Psalm 40 and Psalm 70? Right, Psalm 70 is almost word for word the second half of Psalm 40. And Psalm 40 verse 17 corresponds to verse 5 here of Psalm 70. So I'm going to read Psalm 40 verse 17 and you follow along and watch the words in verse 5 of Psalm 70. So here's Psalm 40 verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, do not delay. Oh, my God. Did you pick up on a few differences there? Right, here's one. David says here in Psalm 70, verse 5, make haste. That's one difference. But here's the second. In Psalm 40, verse 17, David had comforted himself with the truth that the Lord takes thought for him. Here, David doesn't bring that comfort to bear, does he? He doesn't say here in Psalm 70, verse 5, the Lord takes thought for me. Do you see how poor and needy David is? Right? It, it may be that he fears as though the Lord has forgotten about him. Now, we know that the Lord always remembers his people, but here is how desperate David is. He passes right over that comfort and rushes to his plea. Hurry to help me. Do not delay. I can't wait one more second for your deliverance, oh my God. That's David's desperation. But did you notice the wisdom in David's plea here? Do you notice the faith in David's plea? Here's the wisdom. David goes to the God who possesses the treasury of infinite grace and mercy. Right, God makes rich in Jesus Christ those who are poor in spirit. In the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 26, with confidence, David draws near to the throne of grace so that he may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us learn from David. When we are desperate, we must draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's David's wisdom in this plea. You can seek the one who can actually help you. You can seek God. And in your poverty, seek the God who is rich and mercy. There's David's wisdom. But I also asked if you saw David's faith. You see it? You don't ask God to deliver you unless you believe he really is able. Right? David really does believe God is able to help and deliver him. David does not have any time to waste. It would be a waste of time to stop and to offer this prayer if he didn't believe and if he wasn't asking in faith for God to deliver him. His predicament is too severe to kind of fritter away his time. But David is not wasting his time in prayer. And Christian, you will never waste your time in prayer. David is laboring in prayer because he believes that Yahweh will answer him. He believes that Yahweh is his deliverer. Christian, when you pray in faith, you're not wasting your time. Moreover, you can be sure that you will be heard. David was sure that he was being heard. Just as David prayed urgently, so Jesus prayed urgently. Did you know that about our Savior? He prayed with urgency. So this is what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard 
because of his reverence. Right? In the Garden of Eden, sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and on the cross, our Savior prayed. He prayed for deliverance. His father seemed distant. His father seemed to delay. He was at his weakest. He was at his most poor and needy point. He was stripped of all his worldly and earthly goods. And he prayed, entrusting himself and his spirit to the Father. He was heard. And three days later, he was delivered from the grave. And having been raised and made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Brothers and sisters... You are poor and needy. Right? We're poor in spirit. We need the Lord to work in us. Are you poor and needy? Are you weak and wounded? Are you sick and sore? Then pray. Pray for Jesus to hurry. Hurry to help. Hurry to turn back your enemies. Hurry to strengthen His people and restore the joy of your salvation. Hurry to deliver. Pray, make haste, Lord Jesus. Pray, come, Lord Jesus. Right? That's the ultimate destination of Psalm 70 because it's the ultimate and final deliverance of God's people. We may pray for the Lord to deliver us from our trials and tribulations and all kinds of trouble in this world. We can and should ask our God to deliver us and help us and rescue us in these trials. But ultimately, those who seek the Lord, those who rejoice and are glad in God, those who love the salvation of Jesus, those who boldly proclaim the greatness of Jesus, want Jesus to make haste in His return. And we need to pray as though we don't have a second to spare. We need to pray with the urgency that David prays. Hurry to help us, Lord Jesus. Hurry, Lord Jesus, because our enemies, they are strong. Hurry to help, Lord Jesus, because we're weak and our joy is fading. Hurry, Lord Jesus. Hurry to deliver us. Let us be doers of this word. And let us make this prayer our prayer to our God now. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.